Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have just prayed that we believe in your Holy Spirit. We have sung that we need the Spirit today to work in our hearts. The same breath that breathed life into all that lives breathes life through your Word. Your Word which your Spirit breathed out through your apostles and prophets. Father, there are so many competing ways of life in the world in which we live today. So many things we look to to find satisfaction. And Lord, as we, your people, move through this world in which we do not belong the enticements to the things of this world grow strong. And yet, Father, we also see that those who depend on that which cannot satisfy leave dissatisfied. And so the lives of the world around us today is lived in emptiness, lived without peace and joy, lived without hope. So, Lord, by Your abundant grace, we praise You that by Your Spirit, we who have turned to Christ know this, that Christ alone is our satisfaction. And so, we come today as we've walked through a weary world, as we ourselves have been wearied by the difficulties of this world. Lord, we come to You today and beg that Your Spirit would come alive in us today and make us yearn more for Christ. That we would hunger and thirst for Him. And Lord, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that that reality would transform all that we are. So, Lord, bring the Spirit today. Turn our striving into works of grace. And may we leave this place different than when we first came in as we see You in Your Word. Work in our midst as only You can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. I, I said last week that my desire was to finish this study on 2 Peter, 2 Peter today. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> uh, we're, going to, we're going to barely get to two verses this, this morning. But this last section of Peter's letter provides for us what I'd like us to consider are as principles for the pilgrim's path. Peter has, in his first letter, called us to recognize that we are strangers and foreigners, that we are exiles, that we don't belong. To coin the phrase of that good old American hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And Peter expounds that reality and shows us in in 1 Peter what that means to walk the path of a pilgrim. And then in 2 Peter, and what we've been looking at as we've worked through this book, is he gives us a place to look for the strength to walk the path of a pilgrim. That there is power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we saw that in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His, to his own glory and excellence. And so as Peter closes this letter, he provides for us some, as he's finished providing these reminders that we've looked at the last several weeks, he now provides some principles for us to keep before us. 
ways in which we can go about living the pilgrim life. I know it may not look like it as I have gotten older and fatter, but when I was in high school, I played soccer. And I used to be a beanpole of a thing. Um, And I remember it was something that I really wasn't too thrilled about doing. My dad said, you should probably try playing soccer. I'm like, okay, all my friends were playing soccer. So I said, I'll I'll go out for the team. And I went to a small Christian school. And so it really wasn't hard to get on the team. But I wasn't really a starter. I was clumsy. I was falling all over myself, which I still do today. Um, Yesterday, or not yesterday, Friday, I was walking someplace and just fell for no reason. So I don't know why that is. But anyways, um, there was a, a tournament that we were playing early on in my first season playing soccer. And um, the, we, had, we played a, a, a diamond defense where we had a, a stopper and a sweeper and then two wings that played defense. And I had, had been set to play on defense, but I wasn't a starter. And in that game, the guy who was the starter who played stopper injured himself. And so they took him out, and the coach put me in. And I had, this was the first game I'd ever played in. And let me tell you, I was getting burned left and left and right, all right? Guys were, guys were walking all over me as they were playing. So as it came to, to the halftime, the coach pulled me aside and he said, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to look not at the ball, but at the player's belly button. And that's what he, that's what he charged me to do. And he says, you don't Keep, you keep your eyes on the belly button because the ball can seem like it's going one place but go another, but wherever the player's going, his belly button is going to go there too. And I mean, I don't think anybody's mastered the skill of, of throwing their belly button someplace else or whatever. And so that, that initial principle, I stuck by it, and as a result of that, I was like, oh, I'm actually stopping people. I'm doing what the stopper's supposed to do. And keeping that principle in mind, I played all through high school, on playing soccer. And we were a relatively good team, not because of me or really any of the other players. We had one exceptional player uh, that, that did really well for us. But that basic principle was what helped me to be somewhat successful in the task that I was placed to do. And we, I think, understand this. In fact, over and over again, you hear people talking, particularly in sports or in any venture in life, you have to get back to the what? basics, the basic principles of what's required to do whatever activity it is. Now, the reason why we have to remind ourselves in, in different, different endeavors in life to get back to the basics is because what do we forget to do? Get back to the basics. We let our lives become complicated. We let the things of life and, and the different ways we're handling things sort of crowd out the basic principles of whatever endeavor we're seeking to do. And this is particularly true when it comes to the Christian life. It's very easy for us to get complacent, to get comfortable in our lives, and and to fall away from what we've been called to do because we're not keeping the basic principles in front of us. Believers do not fall away from the faith or backslide all of the sudden, often. Although that does happen, oftentimes it happens as a slow drift backwards. And that slow drift begins because they neglect these principles. So this is what Peter is going to point us to as he closes his book. These essential principles for the pilgrim's path. And this morning, the first principle I'd like us to look at is that we must walk in obedience as a pilgrim. We must walk with diligent obedience as a pilgrim. Look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, 
Beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 14 and 15 this morning as Peter calls us to diligent obedience. Now, the first thing we have to recognize is that this obedience we have must be an eager obedience. He says, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Now, what he's doing is building on the exhortation that he gave in the previous paragraph. We are waiting for, as he says in verse 13, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now this reminds us of the fact that we are pilgrims. That what we have on this earth is not the end-all be-all of our existence. We are going some, we're looking forward to someplace else. A new heaven, a new earth, where there is no sin, there is no corruption, there is no injustice, where righteousness dwells. But as we wait for these things, we must be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this waiting is not a passive waiting. When Peter says, since you are waiting for these things, what do we do while we're waiting? Things have changed a lot for us in this day and age, particularly with the advent of smartphones. So when you're waiting, what do you do? You're on your phone, right? We constantly fill our lives up with stuff. We don't like that empty space or empty time. And and oftentimes we fill them with things on our phone that are just as empty as if we were. It'd probably be better for us to just sit there and not do anything because of the stuff we often find on our phones. But nonetheless, we recognize that as we're waiting, we want to do something. And you realize that you are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, and the Lord has not chosen to come back yet. Now, praise Him if He were to come back, we would welcome that. At this moment, we would welcome that. But He hasn't. And so as we wait with confident faith for His return, we're not just supposed to sit back and do nothing. We need to be diligent. The term that he uses here for diligence also, I think, helps shed some light on the paradoxical statement he makes earlier. Remember we talked about in verse 12 that we are waiting for and hastening or hurrying up the coming of the day of Lord. And it seems like those two things are conflicting. How can we wait, but then also hasten or hurry up? They seem like they don't fit. And the term that he uses here for being diligent, I think, helps to form for us what it means to hurry up. We hurry up. We're eager to obey what God has said. As we're waiting, the one thing we can do is be diligent about obeying our Lord. This term, be diligent, comes from a related word that has in its meaning a quickness to carefully undertake an action. So it's not hurried in the sense that we hurry up and aren't careful with what we're doing, but rather we carefully hurry to be about the task that it's calling us to do. It's translated throughout the New Testament as eager, giving your best effort, striving, and as we, as we see here in our text, being diligent. In one in, uh, of Second Peter, Peter exhorts us and uses this word again, telling us to be diligent in confirming our calling and election. He charges us with this urgent call because if we neglect to supplement our faith with the moral qualities he describes in chapter 1 in verses 5 through 7, then he tells us we risk becoming unfruitful and ineffective in our knowledge of Christ. And, and this, here's the reality. Everybody 
that follows the Lord, we want to one day hear when the Lord evaluates our life, what do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Just a quick note, that joy is the key to living a life well done in God's sight. Because as we go through this life rejoicing in the Lord, guess what we get for all eternity? We get to enter more into the joy of the Lord. So let us never sense or think for one moment that obeying the Lord robs us of our joy. It is the very pathway to joy. Because we're rejoicing in who our God is. And so as Peter began his letter saying, be diligent to make your calling and election sure, making sure you have these moral virtues in place so that you don't become ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord, he now ends it by calling us to that same diligence. Our knowledge of Christ is, must be a full knowledge of Him. He is a loving, forgiving, gracious, and merciful Lord, but we must never forget what Peter just reminded us of. He will come one day and He will act as a righteous judge. And what will the righteous judge do to the very elements of this world? They will melt. They'll burn with an unquenchable fire. And so Peter, building upon this and building upon the fact that we who are his wait for this new heavens and new earth, he charges us that this knowledge should produce fruit in our lives. It should prod us to a quick and diligent response before the Lord. We must be eager about it. It must be the thing that drives and motivates us, seeking to be found by Christ without spot or blemish and at peace. What what does this eagerness look like? Well, I I think to some extent, you can see this illustrated in a young child's face on Christmas morning. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes, Christmas has become more about the presence than about the great present, Jesus Christ. But I think it's a good illustration of what eagerness means. If you're a child, and and maybe you remember this growing up, you know, you went to bed Christmas Eve, and and you put your head on the pillow, and and you went to sleep, and then, you know, your parents, who were probably up till 3 o'clock in the morning wrapping your presents, you would be up at the crack of dawn. And you would run down the stairs and you would go to get those gifts and you would be like, look, and you would be eager to open up those gifts. Your parents probably less so because they were tired. But that that description of eagerness should describe the way we should feel about serving the Lord. It should give us great delight. We should be quick and eager to go about what He's called us to do. Now, we often find ourselves very much like little children, right? Eager and excited for things. But so often our eagerness is placed in the wrong things, is it not? We delight in the wrong things. Our eagerness is placed for things that don't matter. Sports, careers, possessions financial security, ease of life, comfort, music, movies. Really, anything in this life that is not Christ can so easily become the thing that we are quick and excited about. You can evaluate this in your own life when you evaluate your own exuberance at certain things. What are you more excited about? Are you more excited to be able to come and meet with God's people and worship Him? Or are you more excited that the Steeler season has begun again? Which, if you were to to evaluate your excitement over it, which is more exciting to you? 
We really need to take Peter's words to heart. Are we diligent? Are we eager? Are we quick to please the Lord? Is it truly the joy of our lives? Or do we find our joy in much lesser things? And so Peter says, be diligent to be found by Him. But what is it that we are diligent for? We are diligent to have a faith-filled obedience. Notice what Peter says. Our diligence is so that when Christ returns, He would find us in a particular state without spot or blemish and at peace. Paul tells us in Romans 14.10, we will, how many? All. Stand before the judgment seat of God. Every single one of us will stand before God and give an account for their lives. What will Jesus find? What will He see when He looks at your life? Now again, this, this idea of to be found by Him picks up on what Peter was saying in the previous passage. Remember he talks about that the earth is going to be burned and the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. And when this happens on this great day of the Lord, all the works done on the earth will be what? Exposed. Every single action that you have ever done will be exposed before the eyes of Him who sees everything. The Scripture tells us that even every errant word, every careless word, will be brought to account. That should make us shudder. How often have you been careless with your words? You've said something harsh. You've demeaned your Savior. You've turned and thought things that are not in accordance with Him. And so when we truly evaluate ourselves honestly and we see that we are to be found by God without spot or blemish and at peace, the question is, how in the world can that be the case for sinners like us? How can we be found without spot or blemish? I want to talk a little bit about these two terms that he uses here and then the third term, at peace. And really, this without spot or blemish I think can be summed up with the idea of purity. We're to be pure. Now, Peter is contrasting this with what he describes as the false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, He describes these false teachers as suffering wrong as they wage, um, I'm sorry, suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So, in contrast to these libertine teachers who teach that you can indulge in the flesh and go ahead and live up life because Jesus isn't returning anytime soon. He may not ever return. Then live because there's no consequences. In contrast to that, we should not be blotted or blemished. We need to be without spot or blemish. Now we have to recognize that this has always been God's intention. He expects holiness of His people. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, this is the passage where God is describing the Passover. What type of lamb was acceptable? Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, Often in Leviticus, if you were to just take a search and look up this term without blemish, you would find over and over again any sacrifice that is brought before the Lord in the Old Testament, it had to be without blemish. God demands holiness. 
And so it is that Peter reminds us that there is only one who is without spot or blemish. It's Jesus Christ. He reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And what is the blood of Christ like? Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Only Christ meets this qualification. Only Christ is the one who provides the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that is fully acceptable in God's sight. Only Christ lived a life without spot or blemish. He alone deserves to inherit a world where righteousness dwells because He alone is intrinsically righteous. And yet, in pure grace, He determines to take spotted, blemished sinners like us and make us without spot or blemish. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that He chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul charges husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He can do what? Sanctify her. Make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the goal of Christ's work of redemption. This is why Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life. This is why He displayed that perfect righteousness and He died and shed His blood so that in and through the blood of Christ, we who have come to Him might be washed clean from all our sins. This is God's Work in Christ on our behalf. How do we have any hope to be found by Him without spot or blemish? And the answer is through Christ alone. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If... If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice what Paul says here. Christ comes to present us holy, blameless, above reproach. But that hope is only Given to those who have what? Faith. And not just a one-time faith that then we go out and live our lives as though we have no faith. It is a faith that we persist in, that we continue in. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard. How do we obtain or hope to in any way, shape, or form be found by Christ without spot or blemish and at peace? It begins with faith in the Son of God. We are set apart. We are made holy. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about obedience... 
which we need to. The Bible talks a lot about obedience. And Peter here is encouraging the believers. He's charging the believers. He's charging us today. We need to be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. How do we do that? It begins with trusting in Jesus Christ alone. If your trust is in anything else, if it's in Jesus plus something else, then you have no certain hope. You have but a shifting sand, a shifting hope. You must have hope in Christ alone, and that must be it for the rest of your life. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. On Christ, what type of rock is He? The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so what this faith in Christ provides for us is a declaration of our righteousness. Paul writes to the Philippians, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be, here it is, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through our righteous actions. It comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice how Paul describes this reality. He's charging us to have knowledge, to abound in love, to have discernment, to approve what is excellent, and to be pure and blameless on that day when Christ returns. How do we seek that? It begins by having the fruit of righteousness that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ grants us a legal purity and Christ in us produces an inward desire to be diligent to pursue that purity. This is what Peter is talking about in chapter 1 when he talks about those virtues that supplement our faith. It's what James talks about. Faith without works is what? Dead. And so we cannot go about our lives as pilgrims. We cannot in any way, shape, or form think that, oh, I've walked an aisle, I've prayed a prayer, I read a track, and now I'm good, and then live our life as though we're children of the devil. That, the New Testament never conceives of that. What the New Testament sees is someone who by faith and turning to Christ now desires to do what Peter is saying, to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Trusting that that reality is ours in Christ and then letting that reality work its way out in our lives every single day. Listen, we all yearn for the return of Christ, do we not? Even so come, Lord Jesus. You know what Paul said, told Titus about that? As we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to what? Purify for Himself a people for His own possession. And what are the people that Christ possesses like? They are zealous, they are eager, they are diligent for good works. And so this faith-filled obedience calls us to be undefiled, spotless at the day of Christ. Our hope Our ultimate hope on that day is not found in our pursuit of holiness, but in the Holy Christ who is our righteousness. But on that day, what will Christ find you being eager about in your life? Is this how Christ will find you one day? 
that you are a person who is zealous for good works? Let's say that that day were to happen right now. Let's say that the trumpet were to sound, the heavens would be opened, and we as God's people would be ushered into his presence. Could it be said that you've followed the Holy Spirit's words through Peter's pen to be diligent, to live a life without spot or blemish? Perhaps you would be found at that day being diligent for other things. Listen, that day is coming. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or this year or next year or if it's going to be another 2,000 years. I don't know. The Father knows. And as we saw, His, His plan is perfect, right? So our response is to be patient. But as we're patient, as you're waiting for that day, are you diligent for purity? But the second thing that Peter calls us to pursue with this faith-filled obedience is peace. To be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Why does he throw this in here? Why does he talk about peace? I think if, if we're honest, and if we evaluate our own lives, we struggle with peace, don't we? We live in a very uncertain world, don't we? You don't know what's going to happen. Even, you know, we look at the political machinations of this world. We don't have control over those things. We look at cultural trends. We look at changes in society. And, and that can be disturbing for us. But I just want us to back up a little bit and not even talk about those things have you like looked at what's happened recently with natural disasters? Earthquake killed hundreds of people. Fire in Hawaii. Flooding. Have you seen the, the death toll with the flooding? Tens of thousands of people dead. Who, who knows what will happen today? Listen, all of this area around here was old strip mines. Maybe the earth will swallow, fall up and swallow us here. I mean, I hope not. But listen, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and you have no control over the weather. You certainly have no control over the markets. We can have a voice in our government today, but let's be honest, we don't control that either. There's so much uncertainty in this world. And what, what Peter is charging us to do is when Christ comes to be found, what? At peace. Now we have to remember that peace with God only comes again through what? Faith in Christ. Romans 5, 1-2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we possess, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. By faith we do not fear condemnation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is the work of Christ that establishes us blameless in holiness before our God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His, and we use the term saints, but I think it fits better to call them the holy ones here with all His holy ones. So Peter calls us to be at peace and we recognize that it is the God of peace who makes us holy completely, sanctifies us completely. 
And it is through this God of peace working within us that we are kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is what? Faithful. He will do it. What a wonderful passage of hope that He which has begun a good work in you will complete it. And so, what do we need to do then to possess this peace? Of course, we have faith in Christ, but notice what John says. Little children, what? Abide in Him. So that when He appears, when He returns, when the day of Christ comes, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Then I love what John says, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. How do we have peace at the return of Christ? Because our hope is settled on Christ alone. And so we seek to live that peace out by abiding in Him. You know why you don't have peace in this world? Because you're abiding, you're gaining your life from things that can never satisfy. Jesus' parable of the two men who built houses is such a helpful illustration for us. You can build your house on the sand or you can build your house on the rock. What happens to the house built on the sand? The wind comes, the storms come, the waves come, and that house, what? Falls. Listen, this world is filled with lots of uncertainty, lots of storms. And if your house is built on the sand... You begin to see the erosion happening and you don't have peace because you have your life built on the wrong thing. So whatever that is, maybe you've built your your life, your house on the sand of money, finances. And then you see what's happening with interest rates through the roof. Maybe you've built your life on certain relationships in your life. And then those relationships begin to crumble and fall. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's your job. Your friends. Maybe it's substances. Drugs or alcohol become the very thing that the only way you can find peace. And when those things wear off, what do you need even more? More of those things. We are so like the man who builds his house on the sand. And building our house on the sand brings us no peace. But when our house is built upon the rock and the winds come and rage against it, the waves crash against it, that house stands firm. And so you can be in your house and it can be the world around you can be battering against you and you can have peace because your life is built on the rock. So we have to realize that on the day of the Lord, there's only one thing that will matter. It's not our pedigree. It's not our outward conformity to a set of rules. Rather, as Paul tells us, it is faith working through love. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly Wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This is the only thing that counts. Faith working through love. 
And Peter is exhorting that same thing here. Listen, we need to be eager. We need to be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. That begins with faith, but it is not an inactive faith. It is a working faith. A faith that works out through a heart that loves the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, all our mind, all our soul, and loves our neighbor as ourselves. Listen, Christ has not returned yet. And Peter tells us, since you're waiting for these things, be eager, be diligent, so that when He returns, He will find you without spot or blemish and at peace. Faithfully relying upon Christ and living that out in every aspect of your life. Jesus asked this question of His disciples. That God will... Give justice to this world. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes to execute that justice, what is He looking for? Will He find faith on the earth? A real, true, living faith. So, as we have this eager obedience and faithful, faithful obedience, finally, we're called to have a patient obedience. Look at verse 15. And count, consider, the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Listen, The Christian life is not complicated. It's straightforwardly given in God's Word, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. There is a point to why Peter and Paul and the apostles call us to endurance, to patience, to eagerness, because there's going to be obstacles placed in our path. And As this world waxes or grows more and more worse, do our hearts not yearn all the more for Christ's return? But we must realize that God's supposed delay, and He's not delaying, He will come exactly when He determines to come. It is not an indication that He won't keep His promises. Rather, it is an indication for us to consider that God patiently waits so that people will be saved. Aren't you glad that Jesus has waited so that you could come to know Him? That He has been patient with the sins of this world so that Christ could enter and come and change the heart of another believer like you? And so Peter tells us to count this patience. It's interesting because he's contrasting this with what the false teachers were saying earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3. They were saying, where is the hope of His coming? They're questioning that. And the term that he uses here for count, it has the idea of leading or guiding something somewhere. In other words, we're to lead our minds, not let our minds be led to consider, to be active, recognizing that God's salvation comes, God's patience comes so that He may save. Romans chapter 2 Paul provides, I think, a a clear indication for us as to what this is all about, this patience. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, the things he described in chapter 1, sinful actions. And then he indicts his mostly Jewish audience Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? 
repentance. See, what the false teachers were teaching was God hasn't come, so that should allow you then to live it up, indulge in sin. But it's the exact opposite. God delays His return so that we would repent. So that we would turn from sin and turn more to Him. And so that needs to be a principle in our own lives as we seek this diligent obedience. The Lord hasn't come back yet. So that means I need to pursue righteousness and holiness. I should cast off spots and blemishes in my own life. I should seek to have my life founded upon Christ alone so that they am at peace. And I should recognize that because Christ hasn't returned yet, there are probably still things in my life that I need to repent of. The psalmist in Psalm 109, or 119 says this, God's Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to our path. It guides our steps as pilgrims. So what must we do? I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Peter is calling us to that same thing here. If we're to live without spot or blemish and being at peace, then the Word of God needs to guide our actions and we need to commit, we need to swear an oath to keep God's Word. And even as we are severely afflicted in this life, we recognize that peace comes through the life that Christ gives. That He promises according to His Word. And so it results in a free will offering of praise as we seek the Lord to teach us His rules. And so as we walk our lives, holding our life in our hands continually, what we must never forget is what? His law. So this first principle for the pilgrim's path is diligent obedience. Obedience that waits for the Lord's return. Obedience that flows not from legalism, but from faith. Obedience that rests in Christ's work. And obedience that seeks to let God's patience drive us to more repentance. Is that true in your life today? How Will Christ find you? If he were to return right now, what would be his assessment? May we, by the Spirit's work, seek to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. Lord, What a convicting passage. What a high calling. Lord, may we truly set aside any other hope, finding hope in Christ alone, and may that drive us to be zealous, a faith that drives us to be zealous for good works according to your word. Father, work in our hearts through your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name.